0: straight talk from israel you're listening to israel news talk radio you're listening to the jay shapiro show
1: Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro, thanks for listening. Today Israel is in the midst of a governmental crisis that's been brought about because of the electoral system here. And this crisis has prevented the passage of a number of laws that are extremely important, particularly for the people of Israel who live in areas taken over by Israel in the Six-Day War. Other than Jerusalem, these areas were never officially made part of the state, there are people living there and have rights as citizens only through what's called the West Bank Emergency Act. The act has to be renewed every five years. And if it is not renewed, the people who live in Judea and Samaria are no longer governed by civil law, but rather by military law. This means that they will not have the rights of other citizens. And a number of parties in the opposition are preventing the law from being passed. They're doing this for political reasons. The electoral system here is based on, on a system in which the members of the Knesset aren't elected by the people, but rather chosen by the political parties. Unlike many countries where the representatives in the government are elected in local districts, the system in Israel is based on voting for parties, not for individuals. There are 120 seats in the Knesset, so each party puts forward a list of up to 120 names And the people can only vote for a list, not for individuals on the list. So the Knesset members don't care what the people think. They only have to please the party leaders to ensure that they're on the list. That is the great defect of the Israeli system. And now we are in the midst of a crisis. And hopefully it will be resolved. Of course, I'll keep the listeners informed. And if all goes well... The people in the Knesset will come to their senses and pass again the law that allows people living in Judea and Samaria to be treated as normal citizens. That military law. It's a, this is a major problem. I'll keep the listeners informed. Thanks again for listening. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. As a general rule, I think my listeners know that I don't like to bother the listeners, with the details of Israeli politics, which are quite complicated. However, certain things are happening now that are going to affect our foreign policy. So I want to share my thoughts with the listeners so they'll have a good picture or a better picture of what's happening. The President of the United States, Joe Biden, was originally supposed to come to Israel at the end of the month of June. But then what happened, Israel's political problems blew up, and the government of Prime Minister Naftali Bennett now seems to be hanging by just a loose thread, and it was clear that this was not the most opportune political moment for a presidential visit. Earlier this week, the government lost a very important vote in the Knesset, having to do with Israeli sovereignty over the area captured in 1967. It's a little complicated, but right now, at the end of the month, unless the law concerning that area of Palestine, of Eretz Israel, is extended, then the Israeli citizens living there will be in a very strange situation because they will be neither here nor there via, via, via their rights as citizens. That is a good possibility, as I'm speaking, that the government falls between now and the end of the month. What use would it be for the President of the United States to meet a lame-duck Israeli Prime Minister? Now, Biden, for his domestic political interests, would hope that his trip to Israel would yield some concrete result on something like uh, jump-starting peace with the Palestinians, or some kind of understanding about Iran. Because remember, uh, one of the main reasons for Biden's trip is because there's a a midterm election coming in November, and according to most of the uh, prognosticators, the, the Democrats are going to lose badly. So what chance would there be for any of importance happening if he met with Bennett, who might be out of office by the end of June, and the other guy who would replace him, the foreign minister and the alternative prime minister, Lapid, whom he may never make it to the top of the pyramid, at least not in the current Knesset. In other words, Biden, I'm sorry, uh, Bennett and uh, Lapid made a deal that for two years, Bennett would be prime minister and uh, Lapid would be foreign minister. Then after two years, they would exchange places. But now it looks like the government's not going yet that far. Now, at the moment, neither Biden nor his advisors gave any explanation for the fact he is now postponing his trip. So, this led to a wide range of speculation. It could be because it wouldn't make much sense for the American president to meet with an Israeli Prime Minister who is about to go out of office, and uh, other people said that uh, they need additional time to put together a meeting with the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. the uh, remember Biden said before the last election. He would treat Saudi leaders like the pariah that they are. But now he's apparently changed his mind. So could be the postponement of the president's trip may have to do with the fact there is a number of mass shootings in the United States and the economic situation is very bad. Right now, uh, I'm I'm, uh, recording this program on Wednesday and the average price for a gallon of gas in America today is $5. Uh, So whatever the reasons for the president to put off his trip, it might even be postponed uh, even further, especially if Israel's political crisis continues. No point in meeting when a prime minister is about to go out of office, because the truth of the matter is that many world leaders are asking themselves how much time and energy to invest in the current government of Israel, not knowing how long or even they'll be around in a couple of months. The Bennett himself, by the way, who is presently the prime minister, added to the general sense that the government in his final days, when he did something very interesting. He wrote a 28-page letter to the silent Zionist majority, He did that last week, and in it, he tried to remind the readers why this government was formed in the first place, because up to the time that this government was formed, there had been four inconclusive elections, and uh, the political situation here is really a mess. So the letter that he sent, came just a few days before the one-year anniversary of the government and part of it read like the type of press releases that Netanyahu used to put out on milestone dates. This letter put out by the prime minister had sort of a desperate tone. Bennett urged supporters to rally in the streets in favor of the government and then he had a list of things which his government has done. He also warned that the country could fall apart if, it were to be, if his government were kicked out of power. So, interesting. The, uh, the political mess here is somewhere beyond the word mess. It's really, uh, my feeling is, by the way, and I've said this many times, it's that one of the reasons we have this political mess is because the politicians, the members of Knesset, do not have to answer to the, to the, to the population for anything they do. The, uh, when you vote for the Knesset, you do not vote for individuals, you vote for a party ticket. So those who are on the ticket don't really owe anything to the population. They only owe their uh, loyalty to the heads of the party to make sure that they go on the list so that they'll be elected next time around. So that is one of the greatest defects of the Israeli political system is that the elected uh, members of the Knesset uh, do not have to turn to the people to get elected. They only have to turn to the To the leaders of their party and gain favor from them. It's interesting that in Bennett's letter, which he just published, he said that uh, the Jewish people have only known two periods of independence and sovereignty in the long Jewish history, and neither of those periods of independence lasted very long. Believe it or not, The first era of independence was during the reign of King David and King Solomon, which is uh, like close to 3,000 years ago. And the second period was in the days of the Hasmoneans, just before the destruction of the temple, and that lasted just about 80 years. So uh, the prime minister wrote in his letter and I quote, we are all being tested whether we will be smart enough to make it through the eighth decade as a united sovereign state, or will we again fail because of internal conflicts? So his message was clear, if this government collapses, then the country is in danger of failing again because of internal conflicts. In other words, if this government collapses, so also could the state collapse. I mean, that's pretty scary stuff. The the the, uh, the leaders of the uh, Hezbollah, the Palestinian Authority, and all our enemies have probably read this letter also, and. And what they must hear when reading it is the Prime Minister of the Jewish State saying the country is in such a precarious state that a change of government could bring about the downfall of the state. So uh, that is kind of a scary thing, really scary. And I don't know how true it is. I think the one thing that stands in Israel's good stead is that the army, the Israeli defense forces, in a certain sense are independent of the government, is the Israeli defense forces that protect us, even if we have a weak government. So Bennett's year in power has proven that the country can carry on and thrive without Netanyahu, and likewise the country can carry on and thrive without Bennett and his, his government. So uh, it will also carry on and thrive if Netanyahu comes back. And the reason is because the people who make up the country desire life, have learned from history, and will utilize the necessary checks that exist in a system to ensure that no one pushes this country over the brink. The people in Israel are better than the politicians of Israel, and that is the, the our strength the people, not the politicians. We thrive despite the politicians. I'll be back after the break. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. In this portion of the program, I want to provide some items not related to each other, but I believe they provide color and background about what's happening here in Israel. And uh, as I said, they're not related to each other, and the subjects are quite different, but I think they're important for people to understand what's happening. First of all, the first item has to do with an area called Beit Shaarim, which is located in the lower Galilee, and it was a central Jewish settlement during the Mishnaic and Talmudic periods, which means in the 2nd to the 5th century of the Common Era. After the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70, the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was the court, moved to Beit Sha'arim, and it became an important center of Jewish learning and culture. The most famous part of the settlement is its cemetery, which was excavated about eighty years ago. Burial inscriptions in various languages, especially in Greek, which was the main spoken language at the time, these have been found there, and among the Jewish sages buried in the city cemetery. Is, for example, Rabbi Huda Nasi, the second century rabbi and chief redactor and editor of the Oral Law, the Mishnah. He was a key leader of the Jewish community during the Roman occupation. Now, Bet is now a national park and the cemetery is recognized as a World Heritage, heritage Site by the United Nations. Now, Although the Beit Shirem burial caves were already well known, two inscriptions were discovered by chance in a new burial cave about a year ago. And uh, these uh, inscriptions have been handed over to the proper authorities for preservation. And they provide information about life in the Galilee during that period, which was the center of Jewish settlement after the destruction of Judah, in uh, the year 135 of the Common Era. So uh, the reason I bring this up because of a new discovery there, which is kind of creepy. An ominous and bloody-looking burial inscription was found, and this inscription warns people to stay away and let the deceased rest in peace. And they just found this in an ancient cave in Bet-Sharim. It was written in red paint, which still survives, and the inscription reads, Jacob the convert vows to curse anybody who would open this grave so nobody will open it. Apparently he died when he was 60 years old. The full text apparently meant to keep grave robbers away, and the story of its discovery was presented at the Northern Conference this week by the University of Haifa and the Northern Region of Israel's Antiquities Authority. So here we found uh, two inscriptions. The second one was also painted in red, and it uh, simply said the name Judah, who archaeologists believe was the owner of the tomb. So we have this warning written about 2,000 years ago, that anybody who opens the tomb is cursed. And it's been found, so I hope it doesn't have any effect on the people who, uh, who opened the tomb. I don't know how long a curse lasts. Let's hope this one already is invalid. The next item has to do with guns. You know, in Israel, a tremendous number of people own and carry guns. Of course, it's quite common to see people uh, on the trains, on the buses, uh, on the trams uh, carrying guns. Uh, I lived uh, for many years in what's called the West Bank, and I carried a gun every day. I still have a gun, and there is very little... Um, death by accident by, gun, by guns here in Israel, even though a tremendous number of percentage of the population actually carry guns. What I found of interest is that uh, something in news from the United States, uh, for decades, the biggest threat kids faced growing up came from automobiles. And uh, now it turns out is gunfire. Uh, The U.S. now is mourning a shooting in in Texas. Uh, It turns out now that guns now kill more kids and more teens than cars do in the United States. This trend has been building in recent years as automobile deaths have fallen with improved safety measures, while gun violence among the young has taken a toll. There is a Center for Disease Control uh, and Prevention. The, the research shows that in 2020, the most recent year available, firearms passed motor vehicles as the leading killer of the ages 1 to 19. Now, that's, that's an unbelievable thing. question you have to ask is what brought about all this violence? Now, experts point to many causes, including the frustrations of poverty and discrimination, uh, glorification of gun violence in popular culture and entertainment, and uh, too easy access to guns. The, uh, but we, the, Apparently, Americans live in a society right now where gun violence is becoming increasingly tolerated. But it's it mainly youth gun violence And each state, of course, has different gun laws, but the number number of people killed by guns is mounting. Now, without going into all the little details, the experts say was uh, the COVID pandemic, with all the disruption it brought and the beginning of an unprecedented surge in firearm purchasing, continues to the present. So the... uh, a, there's a three, 35% increase in gun homeless homicides in the age groups uh, the young among the young. So uh, it's interesting, by the way, the national trend is uneven even across the states. California, which is known for its car culture and the nation's most extensive gun laws, is among 21 states where the number of deaths of children and teens from motor vehicles is higher than from guns. But elsewhere... It turns out that guns are overtaking cars as the leading killers of American youth. Um, Quite sorry to hear this, but I just thought the the, the listeners would be interested in this. As I said in the beginning, we're a country where just about everybody carries a gun, and we don't have a high rate of death by gunfire. The next time I want to speak about is the Shabbat. Of course, uh, Israel is known as the nation that brought the Shabbat, the day of rest, into the world. And when I first came to live here 50 years ago, uh, we worked six days a week. Today, most uh, industry and most businesses are closed also on Friday, although it's a big shopping day. So it turns out there's something called the National Institute for Shabbat, Society and Economy, and they, ha- they launched a program at the president of Israel's residence about a week ago. The, um, what they're looking for is a project. Uh, they want the president to support it. It's a project that the Institute is working on, including, including an examination of Israeli work week and looking at additional options so that Shabbat, will truly become the day of rest. That's one initiative. The second one is called Green Shabbat. The idea is to turn Shabbat into the national green day in Israel via reduction of polluting activity during Shabbat. This, this uh, initiative is actually read, led by a rabbi, the chief rabbi of the city of Ramat Khan, now the, another initiative is headed by a team of senior Israelis who are trying to promote social gatherings and social cohesion during the, the Shabbat. The uh, interesting enough, the team is uh, doing this is led by a former head of the National Security Council, whose name is Meir Ben Shabbat of all things. And so, according to the president Herzog. He said, in my eyes, Shabbat is not a divisive factor, as one tends to think. Shabbat is a unique platform that the Jewish people brought into the world through the Bible. It's a special day of rest that allows food for the soul. So it is our duty as a society to know each other, to get to know the beliefs, opinions, perceptions, and religions of others. Everyone is equal in the state of Israel And only in this way can we become stronger and develop as a people and as a society. It's time to reach the middle ground and learn together about the social Jewish gospel that the Sabbath has brought to the whole world. And according to the people running this program, they say together we will make Shabbat a day of tolerance and connection between all the people. Instead of a rock of controversy, it will be the main branch, the connecting point. It binds us together, the place where we tear down the walls and become one people. So the uh, they're trying to essentially popularize the Shabbat, with something that the uh, that the Jewish people brought into the world more than three thousand years ago, and. Uh, We're trying to uh, popularize it here in the Jewish state. I think that's very interesting, and I present it to the listeners for what's worth. I'll be back after the break. You're listening to the Jay Shapiro Show. We're back with Jay Shapiro, I want to say a few words about something which I think is quite important. But it seems to be something that is never spoken about, or very rarely, and that is our relationship with the state of Jordan, our neighbor, our neighbor with whom we have the longest border. During a visit to King Abdullah in Amman in early January of this year, Israel's Minister of Defense Benny Gantz referred to the strategic importance of strong and enduring relations between Israel and Jordan. Jordan has sustained a stable regime in contrast to the political chaos afflicting the Arab world in recent years. Syria, Iraq, Egypt, Yemen, Libya, Lebanon, they've experienced political polarization and domestic violence. Rulers were overthrown and many thousands were murdered. Jordan and her king have weathered the political storms across the region, and they did not face a popular uprising, a revolution, or a coup d'etat. While the Hashemites demonstrated control over their country, Palestinians over the years have sought to undermine that regime they fomented dissension uh, in Lebanon and Kuwait, created a corrupt rogue authority in Judea and Samaria, and actually an Islamic terrorist entity in the Gaza Strip. Jordan is a better political option to any Palestinian version to replace the Hashemite monarchy. The historic Zionist Hashemite connection offers a sort of uh, nostalgia to an otherwise utilitarian relationship. Chaim Weizmann conversed with King Faisal in 1919. Golda Meir visited King Abdullah in 1948. Moshe Dayan negotiated an armistice in 1949. Yitzhak Rabin conferred with King Hussein. And recently, Naftali Bennett met secretly with King Abdullah. The Israeli leadership partially coordinated the conduct of the war in 1948 with Jordanian counterparts and concluded a peace treaty in 1994. Over many years, the two sides discussed the feasibility of a Jordanian option to neutralize the Palestinian question and to block Palestinian statehood. Already in the 1930s, there was a shared Zionist and Hashemite goal. The Hashemites just as a fear fear the Palestinians even more than Israel does. Now Jordan serves as a buffer state to hamper a possible Arab military onslaught on Israel from the east. This establishes an alliance between Israel and Jordan and Jordan essentially guards the eastern approaches to Israel and Israel serves as a guarantor for Jordan's existence, any potential aggressor from the East would encounter israel Israel's military intervention to thwart ground forces from traversing Jordan and advancing toward Israel so, as a buffer state in Israel's strategic calculations, Jordan is a first target for the armies of Iraq, of Syria, Iraq, Iran, and even Isis. In the event they plan to cross the river and invade Israel, alternatively to use the East Bank as a territorial platform for missile attacks against places like Tel Aviv, an Arab incursion into Jordan would uh, uh, would would excite Israel and would ignite a tripwire Israeli response that secured both Jordan and Israel. Meanwhile, military cooperation, training, aerial exercises, intelligence information, border security are partially veiled aspects of the Israeli-Jordan relationship. Now, American military aid and support for both Israel and Jordan gives these countries a superpower strategic umbrella because they have common interests. They're both considered allies of the United States, certainly aligned with the United States, and this found expression in the economic domain what, because after the 1994 treaty with, between Jordan and Israel, Washington assisted Oman by implementing debt relief arrangements to help Jordan's economic solvency while America maintains an on-the-ground military presence in Jordan, she considers Israel an important partner for weapon systems development and strategic purposes in the region. Washington has diligently cemented the Israeli-Jordan connection. A uh, by the way, a seemingly minor incident in May illustrated this point when a planned civil engineering conference in Amman refused to allow the participation of Israeli researchers, and it took American intervention to overturn the Jordanian boycott. So, although Jordanian has geographic and political and national features of a Palestinian entity, it fails to assume the role of the Palestinian state. The formula of a two-state solution to the Palestinian problem bypasses Jordan by placing a Palestinian state in the West Bank next to Israel. In the eyes of the world, Jordan is neither the problem nor the solution. The the, the Jordan and Israel have bilateral interests, but it doesn't convey public trust. It's sort of a cold peace, and Amman sabotaged normalization from the start. There's really no people-to-people peace, uh, and I, I have visited Jordan on several occasions because they like tourism, but in general, the, the few official Jordanian visits to Israel, the, uh, His Royal Highness King Abdullah II ever came to the Jewish state officially, Israel gives themselves water and gas to Jordan. Jordan, for her part, publicly humiliated Israel by terminating the lease of an agricultural land in the Jordan Valley about two years ago. So in the wake of Palestinian riots on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, just this April, Jordan incited the violence. The the prime minister there and the foreign minister accused Israel of aggression and intrusion, as as the Israeli police quelled the riots, riots at what is Jordan's holiest site for the Jew Israel's holiest site for the Jewish people. The Jordan Bar Association called on the government of uh, Jordan to s- uh, sever diplomatic ties with Israel. So. Also, Israel's policy since 1967 is to concede the daily administration of the Temple Mount to Muslim Jordanian controlled waqf proved to be a, a gesture with debilitating consequence. Uh, alas, what's happening is Israel gives and gets really nothing in return. Jordan's King Abdullah brings an intensity to his call for a two-state solution. He made all kind of addresses at the UN and the European Parliament, and people applaud him. And uh, for all kind of international audiences, are uh, you know they give him all kind of credit. So because Jordan is exempt for, apparently from contrib- contributing to a solution to the Palestinian problem. And the world accept this. The Palestinian problem, is seen by the world, is only an Israeli problem. So while the king calls for genuine security for all parties, he conceals the truth that a Palestinian state in Judea and Samaria would be a lethal menace to him. A tiny tiny Palestinian state would immediately look westward to annihilate Israel, then eastward to swallow up Jordan. Palestinian irredentism could destabilize both countries. So the the king, Abdullah, knows the importance of not having a Palestinian state. So we have an interesting uh, issue here where the king of Jordan uh, pretends to be uh, in favor of peace and in favor of a pali- Palestinian state. What he's most worried about is his own throne. He would rather have the Palestinians be an Israeli problem than be his problem. So a Palestinian state in Jordan would would mean the end of uh, uh, King Hussein. He doesn't want a Palestinian state. And he doesn't want a constant flow of immigration from west of the Jordan River to east of the Jordan River. uh, He is just as much afraid of the Palestinians, if not more so, than Israel is. So Israel needs Jordan, and Jordan needs Israel. They have overlapping and intertwining interests beneficial to both countries. This is is rooted in reality. That's... uh, the, uh, in the end, the Palestinians may never reach the stage of independence. They're barking up the wrong political tree, west of the river with Israel, and uh, they can't. The power differential between between them and Israel is high, and so is the mistrust. So the the Palestinians look eastward toward Jordan, and the Kingdom of Jordan would be very unhappy about that. So I tried in the last few minutes to get sort of a survey, as I understand of why Jordan is supportive of Israel and not wanting to see a Palestinian state because a Palestinian state would be a danger to him. And something we have to keep in mind when we read the Daily Papers. I'll be back after the break. Actually, I won't. This is the third part of the program. Thanks for listening.
0: Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. Just click the orange button at the top of the Israel Newstalk Radio dot home page, log in as yourself or an anonymous guest, and join in on the fun. You'll meet other listeners from all over the world who listen to Israel News Talk Radio, and you can make new friends. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. It's the closest you can get to being in the studio with us.
2: We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Where can you get the inside news on Israel?